Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to us this morning as your people, as your bride, as your church. We pray that you would reveal to us the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, as it is revealed in this passage, and that as we behold it, we would delight in Him and treasure Him and delight in Him above all else. We acknowledge our complete and utter dependence upon you to do this. And so we ask you to. And thank you in advance for how you will. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we are taking a break from our study in the book of Romans. But we are not taking a break from the overall theme that we've been dealing with in Romans chapter 8. The overall theme that Romans 8 deals with is the future glory that we as Christians have to look forward to. And if you could keep your finger in Revelation chapter 2 and flip back to Romans 8, I want to look at what Paul says. Because he says in Romans chapter 8 verse 18 something that is absolutely astounding to the natural man. Something that's absolutely incredible. Look at verse 18 with me of Romans 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And my question for you, Sovereign Grace, brothers and sisters this morning, the question that I've been asking myself throughout the week is do I really believe that? Do I believe that? Because I'm aware of what's going on in some of your lives, the suffering and the trials that you are experiencing right now. And as you think about those, and you look at them in light of the glory that is to be revealed to us, do you, can you honestly say that they're not worth comparing to, that glory? Because I know that right now some of you are going through financial difficulties given where we are economically. Some of you can't find a job. Some of you are trying to make major career decisions and you don't know which way to go and so you're almost paralyzed by them. Some of you know that the sector that you work in is on the brink of of falling apart and so you're afraid that you, you might lose your job. 
Some of you are, are seeing your marriages fall apart before your very eyes, going through a divorce. Some of you are watching your parents go through a divorce. And the heartbreaking experience that that is, some of you are watching someone that you love, their body being racked by an illness, and you feel helpless to do anything for them. Some of you, yourselves, your bodies are being ravaged by an illness. Some of you are struggling with depression and feelings of despair and that there's no hope for you. Some of you are being victims of gossip and slander. Some of you are struggling with a sin or a temptation to sin that you don't know tomorrow morning if you're going to have the strength to wake up and fight it again. Some of you are having to deal with wayward children. The death of someone close to you or potentially even your own impending death. I know for myself, as I've had to walk through this trial with Chad and Teresa, it's been one of the most difficult things I've ever had to endure. And so as we look at those struggles right now, those present sufferings, can we honestly say that they're not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us? It's hard, isn't it? It's hard for me. I'll admit it. Why? Because I can't see the glory that's to be revealed to me yet. I'm not experiencing the glory that is going to be revealed. But I'm experiencing my sufferings right now. I can see the suffering and the trials right now. Look at verse 24 of Romans 8 with me. Paul says, For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. My question for you again is, is that your experience? Are you waiting patiently for that glory to be revealed? Or are you like me, where from time to time you become overwhelmed and your thinking almost becomes clouded with fear and uncertainty and anxiety? In the midst of those trials and sufferings, what do you do in response to that? How do you endure? How do you persevere in the face of that? You try to pick yourself up by your bootstraps, try to find the strength within yourself to carry on. You try to manipulate the situation and the people around you so that you can control the situation. Do you rely on your own resources or do you try to deny that it's even there? Try to escape somehow, distract yourself with food, with alcohol, with sex, with hobbies, with sports, video games, friends, family, activities, spending money, work, comfort, pick your favorite idol. How do we endure through the sufferings and the trials and the fear and uncertainty, brothers and sisters? And the Bible is abundantly clear that we persevere by focusing on the glory that is to be revealed to us. And that glory is the glory of Jesus. 
That's the point of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which says, And we all, all of us as Christians, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. As we behold the glory of Jesus, as it's revealed to us in the Scriptures, we are being transformed by that beholding, by that trusting and that treasuring in who he is and what he's done and in what he's promised to us. And in that process, we are transformed into his image so that we can respond to the trials of life as he did, not perfectly, but from one degree of glory to another progressively. We endure through the suffering and tribulation and fear and uncertainty by heeding the words of Hebrews 12, which tells us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Now, I, I, I can't literally hear your thoughts, but I can hear some of you wanting to say almost, Jason, it sounds real nice theoretically. I know that's in line with Scripture, but it just practically doesn't work. You obviously don't understand the extent of my suffering. You're just a young guy who hasn't experienced much suffering at all. And I'll just respond to you. You're right. I I probably haven't experienced as much suffering as most of you have in this room. But again, I remind you, it rests on the authority of Scripture. And let's together take a look at a man who suffered immensely throughout his entire life and yet was able to endure and persevere through it. The man I'm speaking of is Horatio Spafford. Horatio Spafford was a Christian who lived during the turn of the 19th century in Chicago. He was a very wealthy, successful lawyer and real estate investor. He was married to his lovely wife, Anna. They had four girls shortly after they um, got married. Um, And they just had an idyllic life together. Everything that you could possibly want, they had. Horatio was an elder at his church. He was involved in politics. He was an active abolitionist of slavery. He and his wife reached out to the poor, and they just had a wonderful life. And then things slowly started to unravel and take a turn for the worst. Shortly after the birth of their first son, he tragically died of scarlet fever. Then in 1871, the great Chicago fire swept through the city where Horatio worked, wiping out all of his real estate holdings and his own house, destroying all of his wealth. Horatio at the time was close friends with D.L. Moody, and D.L. Moody was doing a conference in England. He said, listen, you obviously need a vacation. Why don't you take the family and come visit me here? Just take a break from all that's going on. Horatio thought it was a good idea, so they, they planned the trip. They were ready to go, but business kept Horatio back. But he sent his wife and his four daughters on the trek across the Atlantic. And as they were crossing it, tragically, their ship sank. Three miles deep. It sank in 12 minutes. Incredibly, his wife Anna was spared, but all four of his daughters were lost in that boat. All four of them. Just over like that. His wife was devastated. She, she was put on another ship after being rescued, sent him a telegram saying that she alone survived. And so he got on a boat and made the trek across the Atlantic himself. And when they reached the spot where that ship went down, where his four daughters died, 
The captain came to him and said, this is the spot. Horatio retired to his cabin. I can only imagine, wept bitterly and penned these words. When peace, like a river, attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. You see, Horatio Spafford wrote that beloved hymn, It is well with my soul, at the very spot where the Lord had taken the lives of his four girls. And that hit, the rest of his life wasn't easy either. They had another son, and he died again of scarlet fever. He spent the rest of his life, though, reaching out to the poor, eventually dying on, a, on the mission field in Jerusalem of malaria. But he was able to persevere through trials and suffering and fear and uncertainty and unspeakable pain and anguish. Because he was looking forward to the glory that was to be revealed. He was trusting and treasuring Jesus more than anything that this world had to offer. And this morning, I want to take a look at a church that even experienced more suffering and tribulation than even Horatio Spafford. So this, these, these, the, the suffering that these Christians experienced, we don't even have categories to put this kind of suffering into And yet Jesus, in the midst of their suffering, knowing exactly what they needed in order to be encouraged and empowered to endure and not be afraid, reveals to them His glory, shows them how glorious He is. And so we are going to behold that vision together, brothers and sisters. But first, let me tell you a little bit about the city of Smyrna and the church in Smyrna. Smyrna was a Greek word for myrrh. And myrrh was a perfume that was used on both the living and the dead, but it was mostly lived, uh, used on the dead to cover the stench of um, the decaying corpses. And the way that myrrh was made, these flowers were taken and they were crushed. And as they were crushed, they would give off this pleasing aroma. And so I think that's a very beautiful picture of what's going to happen to this church. Under the weight of persecution and suffering, they are going to be crushed, but they are going to be rejoicing in Jesus in the midst of it, giving off this pleasing aroma to Jesus. Smyrna was founded as a Greek colony, and then it was conquered and destroyed by the Lydians. It then remained desolate for 300 years. Then Alexander the Great, once he conquered it, came and started to rebuild it, didn't finish it, his successors finished it, and then once Marcus Aurelius and the Romans conquered it, he modified it and really just made it absolutely beautiful. Smyrna was an extremely wealthy city. It was an epicenter of trade and commerce, second only to Ephesus. So if you were a businessman, this is where you wanted to live so that you could make all this money and and, uh, execute trade. The reason it was so wealthy is because it was the, the crossroads for two main trade routes. By the sea... They had a seaport, the only one there, so imports and exports all the time. And then also there was a road that ran eastward across the Hermas Valley, and it ended right at Smyrna. 
So they were, they were very wealthy as a result. It was where you wanted to live in order to make a lot of money. Smyrna was also beautiful. Even while it lay desolate, the natural surroundings were just gorgeous. It was a coastal city. The breeze would come through and just feel really nice. Beautiful climate. The, sea, the, the sun shimmering off of the sea. It was a beautiful place. And then when it began to be rebuilt, it really took on a special magnificence. I don't, I don't quite have a category to put this into, but one of the characteristics of Smyrna was that they had beautifully paved roads. I don't know what that looks like, but they had those. The most famous was the golden road that went all through Smyrna. And on either side, there were these beautiful trees, and they were known for their beautiful, stately, majestic buildings all along the road. And then on the, the hillsides, there were these glorious temples that, will, that were built in honor of the gods. So it was, a, it was an absolutely beautiful place to be. Some historians actually called it um, the first of Asia. They actually printed that on their coins. And finally... Um, Smyrna was also well protected militarily. Rome came in, um, conquered Smyrna, and Smyrna immediately proved its faithfulness to Rome. And so Rome began to reward Smyrna. One of those rewards was allowing them to govern themselves. Another one was when Rome declared that they were going to build a temple at which Caesar could be worshipped in honor of Tiberius, who was the Caesar at the time, Smyrna won that incredible privilege. And so they had this glorious temple built in honor of him where where, um, emperor worship took place all the time. And the Romans would constantly be testing their faithfulness and their loyalty. One of those practices was annually they would have all of the citizens of the city go through and um, uh, basically say Caesar is Lord, um, light some, some incense in honor of him, and there would be this bust behind the altar. And so they would look at it and say, Caesar is Lord. And after you did that, you got this certificate. And that certificate proved that you were faithful and loyal to Rome. And if you didn't have that certificate, it was basically like having a death warrant out for you. You couldn't get a job. No one wanted to do trade with you. And you could be imprisoned and even put to death if you didn't have that certificate. So obviously this, this posed a very, very difficult situation for the Christians who were in Smyrna. Just a little example of how faithful Smyrna was to Rome. Rome was at war with the Carthaginians during the winter, and some of the Roman soldiers were literally freezing to death while they were fighting. And when the people of Smyrna heard this, they took the clothes off their backs at that very moment and had them sent to the Roman soldiers. So Rome was, um, Smyrna was very well protected militarily, um, because of their faithfulness to Rome. And Smyrna also had a large Jewish population. Um, the Jews were accepted by the Romans. They were granted religious freedom to um, worship their one God. And for a while, the Christians enjoyed that same religious freedom until the Jews ratted them out and said, hey, they believe stuff that's totally different. So they, they're not like us. Because the Jews hated the Christians. They considered them blasphemers, saying that this Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah and then crucified. That's not what the Messiah, he's not going to do that. So they hated the Christians. You see this all throughout the New Testament. Paul hunted down Christians, imprisoned them, put them to death. So this, was, this is an interesting place. It's beautiful, but it's, it's, it's probably hell on earth if you're a Christian. What about the church in Smyrna? We don't know who founded the church in Smyrna. The best guess is that Paul did while he was in Ephesus for three years on his third missionary journey, but we're, we're not certain. We do know that it was largely a Gentile church. 
And we also know that the church was experiencing intense, intense persecution. Jesus tells them in in Revelation chapter 2 verse 9, I know your tribulation. And the Greek word there that's used carries this idea of an intense pressure that burdens the spirit. The, the tribulation that they were carrying on themselves was so intense that it was like this burden they constantly carried with them. And this tribulation specifically looked like um, poverty. You see, Jesus tells them, I know your poverty. And there's two words in the Greek that you can use for poverty. One carries with it the idea of having enough to get by, but no luxuries. And then there's a second Greek word, and this is the one that Jesus uses to describe the church in Smyrna, and that is that you don't even have enough to get by. So you're basically below poverty level. You've been reduced to the level of a beggar. And Jesus says, I know that that's what you're experiencing. They were experiencing that because they couldn't get jobs. They didn't have those certificates. And so no one would trade with them. And so they were living like beggars. Jesus says that he also knows the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They're experiencing tribulation in the form of slander at the hand of the Jews. The Jews would point out to the Romans, the Christians that didn't have those certificates. And so many of them were imprisoned and put to death. Jesus even tells them it's going to happen. Look at verse 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. This happened all the time. They were put into prison and then, and then executed because prison back then wasn't the way we think of it now. It wasn't like you were thrown away and locked up forever. It was a holding tank, essentially like death row until you were to be executed. Um, one example of a martyr in Smyrna was Polycarp, probably the most famous martyr. He was the bishop of Smyrna. He was 86 years old when they burned him at the stake. The Jews pointed him out to the Romans. They went and got him. And the Jews were literally running around the city gathering firewood, building this pyre on which to burn this 86-year-old man. That was the, and it was on the Sabbath. Jews aren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. That was the extent of their hatred towards the Christians. And so Polycarp was martyred. And it happened all the time. It wasn't an isolated instance. I mean, you see that in the movies. The Christians fed to the lions, um, put in the, the Colosseum with the gladiators and run through. All of that happened. So for the Christians, in spite of the fact that it was a beautiful city, a wealthy city, well protected by Rome, and all, it was hell on earth for them because they couldn't make any money and they were constantly in danger because they didn't have those certificates. So, I mean, we, don't need, we can't even think about that kind of suffering and persecution here in America. And yet Jesus, knowing exactly what they need, shows them his glory. And I want us to look at that this morning together. I've broken it down into four points. And the first one is do not fear tribulation. Jesus is sovereign. Do not fear tribulation. Jesus is sovereign. Look, at me, look with me at verse 8. Jesus, describing himself, says that he is the first and the last. He's the first and the last. That is an Old Testament reference that God uses to speak of himself in the latter chapters of Isaiah 40, 44, and 48. And there's another cross-reference in the book of Revelation. If you look at Revelation 1, verse 8, 
Jesus says of himself, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come. So it carries with it this idea of eternality. Jesus has no beginning and Jesus has no end. But there's more to it. You see at the very end of verse 8, tacked on there, Jesus says that he is the Almighty. So it's eternality um, and also the fact that Jesus is sovereign. Now, why does he reveal this to them? Why is that so important? Why would that be encouraging to the church in Smyrna? Because they could know that everything that they are about to suffer, Jesus is sovereign over it. And that's the motivation behind the Great Commission itself. If you look at Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus tells his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Why can we go out and share the gospel to the ends of the earth, knowing that it may cost us our lives, and assuredly we're promised persecution and tribulation and suffering, because all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus That's why Jesus can tell them in Revelation 2.10, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Jesus again told his disciples in John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me, not in your circumstances, not in your situation, but in me, in Jesus, you may have peace. So we can obviously try to think, okay, great, so that means no tribulation, right? No. Jesus says, and he promises, in this world you will have tribulation, but I'll give you peace in the midst of it, in me. You'll be able to take heart. Why? Because Jesus has overcome the world. Nothing can touch you, O church in Smyrna, except what I allow to touch you. And I intend it all for what? Your good in my glory. Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. So church in Smyrna, don't fear tribulation because Jesus is sovereign. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the almighty So do not fear the tribulation that you are about to experience. Secondly, we do not need to fear poverty. We do not need to fear poverty because Jesus is our treasure. Jesus is our treasure. Look at verse 9. Jesus tells them, I know your poverty. He's saying, I know that you have been reduced to the level of being beggars and you have absolutely nothing. You don't even have enough to survive on. I know that. But then he tells them, you are rich. You are spiritually rich in me. What does it look like? What does it look like to be spiritually rich in Jesus? Look with me at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26, which says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
Why? Why did Moses choose suffering over pleasure? We all know his story, right? He was born a Hebrew, and the Egyptians at that time were trying to exterminate the Hebrews, and they were doing that by killing all the newborn baby boys. And so Moses' mother put him in a basket, floated him down the river, and then Pharaoh's daughter um, found him. And, and Moses became one of um, Pharaoh's own sons. And yet, when he had all of the riches, the Egyptians were the most powerful force, political force at that time, when he had all that they had at his fingertips, all the food, all the entertainment, all the pleasures, all the everything that he could possibly want, he turned his back on that and chose to be mistreated with the people of God instead. Why? How was he able to do that? Because he considered the reproach of Christ, continues Hebrew eleven twenty four through 26, greater wealth than all the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Now, what were the rewards? What were the spiritual rewards that Moses was looking forward to? Well, first of all, most assuredly, the enjoyment of Jesus himself. We look forward to the enjoyment of Jesus. Right now, we enjoy Him at different times in our lives to different varying degrees. And that's difficult, isn't it? We, we experience the roller coaster of feeling closer to Jesus and further from Jesus in this life. But the reward that we have to look forward to in the next is that we will behold the fullness of the glory of Jesus and we will enjoy Him for all eternity, experiencing unbroken fellowship with Him. No dark times, no more dark nights of the soul. So we have to look forward to the enjoyment of Christ Himself. Also, in, in order for us to be able to enjoy Jesus, we need new glorified bodies. Because if Jesus were to display the fullness of his glory here in front of us this morning, Sovereign Grace, we would be obliterated. We would die. We would not be able to handle it. Our senses, our spirit, our mind, our hearts would not be able to contain his glory. And so we have to have new glorified bodies in order to enjoy the fullness of Jesus. So we have new glorified bodies to look forward to. That's enough for me. That's all I need right there. Having a glorified body and being able to behold the glory of Jesus. But God in his incredible grace and mercy says there's more. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but in 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23, look it up sometime just so you can make sure I'm not fibbing to you. 1 Corinthians 3, 21 through 23 says that all things are ours. As co-heirs with Jesus, when he comes back, we will rule and reign with him. And we will be inheritors of the, the new heavens and the new earth, ruling with Jesus. So why worry about material possessions now? Why worry about what this world has to offer now in its fallen state? It's all going to be ours in its glorified state. So I'll wait for that. I don't need to worry about scrounging for power now, scrounging for wealth now, scrounging for whatever now. Because I am going to have possession of the whole world with Jesus. And I'm going to have Jesus himself. So Jesus says, though you have nothing, church in Smyrna, materially, you are spiritually rich in me. So keep looking forward to the reward, which is me. So they do not need to fear tribulation because Jesus is sovereign. They do not need to fear poverty because Jesus is their treasure. And thirdly, they do not need to fear death because Jesus has conquered it. They do not need to fear death because Jesus has conquered it. 
Look at verse 8 again. Jesus is describing himself, and he describes himself as the one who died and came to life. There's a cross-reference to Revelation 1.18, where Jesus says that I am the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What is Jesus referring to when he says, I died and came to life? He's referring to his historic death and resurrection. His historic death and resurrection. We don't believe in a fairy tale. We don't think that Jesus died on the cross just like Santa Claus comes and leaves presents under the Christmas tree. It actually happened in time and space and history. Jesus on the cross, his brainwave stopped, his heart stopped beating, he stopped breathing, was dead for three days. And then he was resurrected. He rose from the grave. And all of that picked right back up, whatever that looks like, with a glorified body. So he rose from the dead. But what does it look like specifically? How did Jesus conquer death? The key to that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 54 through 57, which says, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus conquered death by dying because on the cross, He experienced the sting of death for us. He experienced the curse of the law for us. All of our sin on the cross, all of the sins of those who would ever believe, the elect, were imputed to Jesus, reckoned to Him, placed on Him. And he experienced the hell that we deserved in our place. He experienced, he tasted the second death so that we never will. And so he's removed the sting of death because he experienced it for us. And so death, where's your victory? Where is it? It's gone. And then he rose from the dead. And he conquered death in that way because now the Father has said, I'm pleased with what you've done, Jesus. I'm Jesus. I'm pleased with your work. And so we don't have to fear death anymore because the, the victory has been removed. The sting has been removed. And we can now, with the Apostle Paul, as he relayed to us in, a, in Philippians, say that we see death as gain. We look forward to the day of our death because it's gain. Because we will then be ushered into the very presence of Jesus. Though it's unnatural, Jesus has redeemed it. He has conquered it. He has removed the sting of it in his death and resurrection. So we don't need to fear it. Because we will be resurrected like him when he comes again. So they do not need to fear tribulation because Jesus is sovereign. They do not need to fear poverty because Jesus is their treasure. Do not need to fear death because Jesus had conquered it. And fourthly, they do not need to fear falling away, because Jesus will keep you. They do not need to fear falling away. Jesus will keep you. Now, if you're looking through the text right now, you're probably saying, I don't see that anywhere. And it's, I don't think it's explicitly in the text. I think it's implicitly in the text. Look at verse 10 with me. What does Jesus tell them? He commands them to be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. 
Now, here's the assumption that I'm working under, which I believe is a biblical assumption for this passage, is that anytime God commands a Christian to do something, anytime God commands a Christian to do something, he either gives them the strength, i.e. empowers them to be able to do it, or Jesus does it in their place. Does that make sense? Anytime God commands a Christian to do something, he either empowers them to do it or Jesus does it in their place. And so Jesus is telling them to be faithful unto death and he's going to be the one that is going to strengthen them to be able to endure. And you see this all throughout the New Testament, this promise that God is the one, Jesus is the one who keeps us. Um, there's many that we could look at, but let me turn you to my favorite, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Russ read it for us this morning. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Now listen to this, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. This passage is saying that we will receive an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and it's kept in heaven for us. And we are, by God's power, by God's almighty power being guarded, that carries with it the word guarded there, this idea of like a fortress. There's a fortress around us that is impregnable. And that is the power of God. And it is sustaining our faith. It is sustaining us. Jesus not only gave us our faith freely as a gift that we then exercised, but He is the one who sustains it throughout the rest of our lives. And so even though our faith is tested and tried, it will not ultimately, it cannot ultimately fail because God keeps us and sustains our faith. Philippians 1.6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus began that work in us and he will complete it until he comes again. And also, one of my all-time favorites, John chapter 10, verses 28 through 29 says, I give them eternal life. This is Jesus speaking. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus will keep us. And just in case you're doubting, guess what? The Father's also going to keep you. Jesus goes on to say, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's more powerful than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So do not fear falling away in the face of everything that you are about to suffer, church in Smyrna. Because Jesus will keep you. The good news this morning, brothers and sisters, Sovereign Grace, is that this letter was not just written for the church in Smyrna. If you, if you notice, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And it wasn't just all the churches in Asia Minor, it's all the churches of all time. And so this message is for us this morning, brothers and sisters. We do not need to fear tribulation and suffering because Jesus is sovereign over it. 
He's the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was and is and is to come, the Almighty. And only those things that He knows will be worked out for your good and for His glory will He allow to touch you. He gave His own life for you. And He will only allow those things to come into your life, as difficult as that seems right now, in the thick of it, that will be for your good and for His glory. And we do not need to fear poverty, which is a very timely message given where we are economically as a nation, although we, we still don't even know what poverty is like given, compared to the rest of the world. Because Jesus is our treasure. He has given us Himself. And we have to look forward to the full possession of Him, the full experience of His glory in the life to come. And right now, though we don't experience the fullness of those riches, they are ours. So rejoice in that. And know that one day our bodies will be glorified to experience the fullness of His glory. And know that no matter how little you have in this life, we will have possession of the whole world as co-heirs with Christ. And do not fear death, which is the final and ultimate enemy, which is at the top of everyone's list for the number one thing that they fear. Both among the young and the old, death is the number one thing that is feared. We don't have to fear it as Christians. Because Jesus, on the cross, experienced the sting of death that you and I deserve so that we never will. We will never taste the second death. Will we die in this life? Yes. Will it be unpleasant? Yes. But we know that we will be resurrected with a body like he has because he was resurrected from the dead. So now we can say with Paul, I see death as gain. And so I'm not afraid of it. I'm invincible until Jesus says it's time for me to go. And finally, the one that probably is the most encouraging to me is do not fear falling away in the midst of this fallen world because Jesus will keep you. Jesus will keep us. I know the depths of my sinful heart better than anybody else, and it's frightening. And so I look at some of the situations that I know some of you are in. I look at some of the situations that the Christians throughout history have been in, and I go, how am I going to handle that? Am I, is my faith strong enough to, to endure and persevere through that? And there's Jesus saying, do not fear. I have you in my hand, and no one can snatch me out of it. And you can't jump out of my hand. I've got you. By my almighty power, I'm sustaining your faith. And so I will complete the work that I've begun in you. So it's as we behold this glorious vision of Jesus, brothers and sisters, now and tomorrow and all the rest of the days of our lives, and as we look to Scripture to see Jesus from beginning to end, we will find the strength looking forward to the glory that is to be revealed to us to endure the sufferings and the trials and the fears and the uncertainty as we trust and treasure Jesus above all else, knowing who He is and what He's done and what He's promised to do for us.
so that we can say with tears in our eyes and pain in our body and sorrowful joy in our hearts that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. We can say that it is well with our souls.